Back in 2008, when Veritas Software Corp. first took the IRS to tax court, the issue was the buy-in amount in a cost-sharing agreement with a subsidiary. Veritas thought it should be $6.3 million, and shockingly enough, the IRS thought it should be more, a lot more. And while the court eventually put an end to the IRS's valuation gripes by decidedly siding with the taxpayer, it didn't exactly end confusion over what constitutes an arm's-length cost-sharing arrangement, now did it? Granted, it's a tall order. Cost-sharing arrangements are subjective at best, even by transfer pricing standards. Over the years, major tech companies like Xilinx, Amazon, Altera, and now Facebook have all been victims of their own interpretations of cost-sharing regulations that have been written, rewritten, modified, and in some cases, grandfathered to previous or even temporary versions. And we haven't even mentioned the impact of the Tax Cuts and Job Act, sigh. So does the world have a right to be a little perplexed? We'd say so. Hello, everyone. I'm Matthew DeMello, your host of The Fiona Show, Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast, and we're coming to you live, well, for you at home. It will be recorded from our Transfer Pricing Summit in gorgeous Sarasota, Florida. And that isn't even the most exciting news that we have for you this morning. Today, we have a very special guest with us. William Burns is here, and not only did he agree to speak with us about cost-sharing or agree and the TCJA, but he flew all the way down to Florida so he could do it in person. We're going to try and not let that go to our heads, but hey, no promises. What's so special about William Burns, you ask? Well, how much time do you have? An executive professor of law at Texas A&M University, where he leads and develops innovative courses on federal income tax, international tax, and transfer pricing. William Burns has written countless articles, nine books, and 13 tax treatises, including his most recent, William Burns' Practical Guide to U.S. Transfer Price fourth edition, which came out earlier this year. His article on the unintended consequences of APAs, which he wrote with Dr. Lorraine Eden, incidentally, another Fiona Show star, was selected by the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development for its peer-reviewed journal in 2018. And just last year, the OECD invited him to comment at the hearings on both Pillar 1 and Pillar 2. Like we said, he's a big deal. Even better, he, along with Cross-Border Solutions Chief Economist Mimi Song, are going to clear up the mysteries surrounding cost-sharing arrangements. And with changing regulations, expanded definitions, and now new tax reform, there are plenty. Just ask Amazon or Altera or Facebook or, well, you see where we're going with this. And we'll be jumping in very quickly from New York before we continue with our Sarasota program to give you a quick update on transfer pricing in the news. Isn't it great to take a break from coronavirus? I mean, even tax sounds good. Am I right? We certainly don't blame you if you're tired of hearing about Altera versus the IRS. I mean, who isn't? But the company is far from calling it quits. In fact, the Intel subsidiary has petitioned the Supreme Court to review the Ninth Circuit Court's June 2-1 ruling in favor of the IRS, which determined that Altera should have included stock-based compensation as part of a cost-sharing arrangement with its foreign affiliate. Altera has a lot of support on its side. The IRS, not so much. On March 13th, 18 former tax officials from 14 countries, including the UK and Germany, urged the U.S. Supreme Court to hear Altera's appeal. The issue at stake, the arm's length principle. Since Altera wouldn't have to include the stock options in an arrangement with an unrelated party, then they shouldn't be included in a related party transaction either. Isn't that what the arm's length standard is all about? 
The decision has huge implications and not just for overly supportive tech companies who would also be held to the same costly standard. If the ruling stands, the number of disputes between the U.S. and other countries could increase too, as income allocation wouldn't exactly be cut and dry. A highly publicized case and a lot riding on the outcome for many around the globe. Good luck, Supreme Court. It's going to be hard to pass on this one. Given the COVID-19 panic, the OECD canceled the planning public hearing scheduled for March 17th on country-by-country country reporting. We know no St. Patrick's Day parade, no CBC public hearing. How are you supposed to fill your time? The good news is the organization promised a 2020 review of country-by-country country reporting. And true to its word, on March 9th, the OECD released 79 comment letters on CBC reporting for MEs. Here's the scoop. Business administrators think the country-by-country country reporting data should be be exclusively for tax authorities. Well, what did you think they were going to say? Non-governmental organizations or NGOs want country-by-country country reporting to be public. Again, tell us something we don't know. 33 U.S. lawmakers chimed in, too, claiming that they can make better policy changes when they have public information. The lawmakers went so far as to say the model should be aligned with the Global Reporting Initiative Standards for Public Country-by-Country country Reporting, GULP, and that the 750 million euro group threshold for filing country-by-country country reporting should be lowered so that more M&Es will have to file. Hardly great news. Still, there are a few less obvious observations, too. The Japan Foreign Trade Council argued that changes to the report's actual format should be nominal so as not to increase compliance costs for MNEs. An action aid wants to see improvements with the way we exchange information because often low-income countries don't get country-by-country country data simply because the exchange process is too complex. And you thought Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 debates were tricky. Belgium's audit cycle is about to begin, and tax authorities are thinking this round will bring a significant number of audits and adjustments. For multinationals, that means, uh, well, uh-oh. If you happen to be on the receiving end of an audit questionnaire, know a few things going in. First, the Belgian tax authorities mean business. More and more tax inspectors are getting educated specifically on transfer pricing issues, and tax authorities are putting that education to good use. The transfer pricing audit team will hook up with regional tax inspectors and provide technical transfer pricing expertise on standard corporate audits. Read between the lines, people. You're on the verge of a transfer pricing audit. The country also has introduced a software-based risk assessment system. So if you get hit with a transfer pricing audit questionnaire, i.e. step one of the investigation, the tax authorities pretty much know they're on to something. As always, documentation compliance, yep, we're talking master file, local file, and CBC report is your best defense. And speaking of that transfer pricing audit questionnaire, it's 30 questions and your answers best be consistent with your documentation or it's safe to say you'll be spending a lot of time with the TP audit team. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, Big Four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, 
penalties and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. All right. Well, welcome, everybody. We're really excited to have uh, William Burns here with us. Um, and while, you know, before we get started, let's get to know you a little bit better. So first of all, you go by Bill. Is that right? Howdy. Yeah. Bill Burns <laughs> from Texas A&M. Oh, perfect. Now, fun fact. I heard that you design suits, including this lovely ensemble here. I'm from New Orleans. Every year at carnival season, we have to come up with some incredible costumes based on that year's theme. So at a very young age, we learn the supply chain of fashion and textiles. That's amazing. And so what do we have here? Is that a slushies on the bow tie? These are slushies. But we, <laughs> we call them ice, ices because New Orleans is a hot place. But we also have the New Orleans townhomes. That's cute. We have the, uh, so this is the big fashion statement in New Orleans this year. You want to double your bow tie collection? Here's the secret. Take all your bow ties. In the back, untie them. Or if you have little uh, buttons, undo them. And now you have double the amount of bow ties and match them with the different uh, colors and styles. Isn't that cool? Oh, New Orleans people are okay. innovative. innovative. So you mix and match two bow ties together. Excellent. That's good fashion takeaway tip. Tax is not all boring, guys. So quick question. What drew you to tax law? Firstly, when I was young, my family, probably like many of your families, was in some type of business. And that you know, age-old story uh, where you tell the child, you know, this is how the government works. Here's an ice, you know, let's get you an ice cream. Oh, by the way, half of it goes, but what does that half go? And you say, well, that's the taxes on it. And then, of course, you eat their ice cream. Mm -hmm. That drew me to tax, just the interesting aspects of, of my father with papers all over the table and my mother going through forms. And that was before the 1986 Tax Act. When I became an academic, or, or really back when I was in, a, when I was in a college, I was fortunate to meet Walter Diamond. Walter Diamond in the 1940s was the international economist working with the U.S. government on, I'm sure you've heard of Dr. Ronald Coase and, and Tom Schelling, some of these big names. Walter was the person in the other room, and he was the one working with uh, practical solutions for trade issues. He was a diplomat in essence, an eco economics diplomat, but more importantly, he knew tax. In 1941, after the attack on uh, Pearl Harbor, uh, the Roosevelt appointed him to go around the world and to identify and liquidate all the Axis's assets. So Walter Diamond had to write an asset book for the United States government. That book was published in 1946 through what we now call LexisNexis. It was uh, Matthew Bender. And it was covering 100 countries and jurisdictions. 
I learned from the guy, I was his last student, I was his last apprentice, but I learned from the guy who actually lived the history of what we're talking about today. And my takeaway, if anything, from, from having spent his last 20 years of life of him apprenticing me, was that history constantly and consistently repeats itself. Everything that we think is new today, and it's confusing and opaque and complex, I promise you, in 1930, it was confusing, <laughs> opaque, and oplex. In 1940, 50, 60, 70, all the way up till today. Uh, clearly, you have a lot of you know historical references, and and you're right. I think the the perception of history repeats itself is is very much true these days. I'm actually I'm curious. You know, you've been asked to opine on a little uh, a lot of different uh, opinions and you know guidelines these days, especially with respect to the OECD proposed changes in the regulatory environment. What mistakes do you see policymakers make? You know, when they're trying to put forth policies that can work on a worldwide basis, right? Two major mistakes. The first one I just mentioned. We forget history. So when we talk about cost sharing today, I just want to remind us of the history of cost sharing, because if we don't have the historical context, we repeat the same mistakes of the past. Yeah. Secondly, we're Americans. In this room, we're wearing American hats. We have American flags on, because this is our country that we represent. In a geopolitical discussion, by example, I attend the United Nations meetings for the International Tax Committee, and what I find most interesting about that is I come from, I'm American, I you know, grew up in America, my, you know, it's my, everything is America, and all of a sudden I'm in a room with like 30 or 40 other countries, most of them who feel the exact same way about their country. And I think the second mistake that we make is that and this is typical, I think, just as us as human beings, but our way or the highway. Our way is always the right way. Our way is the only way. And when we put us in a global context and we start to understand different perspectives, at that point, perhaps maybe the systems that we've set up in international tax, perhaps they're not the best. Now, I'm definitely not a naysayer. I love the arm's length standard. I think the tax treaty system we have is actually a really good and robust system. However, if we were sitting in India having this conversation, one might imagine that the conversation might have a different tone. But perhaps what they want isn't necessarily tax revenue from your companies. Perhaps what they really want is what we all really want is an economy. Good jobs, investment, innovation. I'd like to get home at six o'clock in the evening. I know this is you know, important for tax people, if I could just get home for dinner. <laughs> um, but I want to get home earlier. And how does that happen? That doesn't happen for all, you know, especially we believe this in America, that doesn't happen through government. Government doesn't create innovation. Government doesn't create jobs. It can fund it. It can sometimes intermediate it. But it's not the creator of that. That's still industry. That's the companies you represent in the room and the listeners on this, this podcast. And so when we talk about cost sharing later, or we talk about international tax in general, mm -hmm. we have to remember the fundamentals of what we're trying to achieve. So the second mistake is not understanding the geopolitical nature, but it's not also not understanding it's not, it's not just about tax revenue. Right. So let's get into the meat of what we're talking about today cost-sharing, right? Cost-sharing arrangements. Let's start with the basics. What is a cost-sharing arrangement? 
and what is the purpose of using one? Okay, so I brought some notes because I want to get some, you know, some specific definitions because we live in a, in a rule of law world. And for those of us who are lawyers in the room, words have meaning. The tax code has meaning. And we're not China. We're not Venezuela. It doesn't just happen on the fly in a discussion with government. We have a book, and we rely on that book to make business decisions. Tax is one aspect, but just one. So by example, we could go through the formal definitions of cost sharing, but I, I broke down just this basic. I, I took all the different regulations. And so it comes down to uh, it's an aspect of negotiating a joint venture between at least two parties. And just to interrupt quickly, Fiona, how have cost sharing regulations changed over the years? The definition of intangible broadened to include workforce in place, goodwill, and going concern value. It also permitted the IRS to value intangibles on an aggregate basis in cases where it achieved, and I quote, a more reliable result. So, you can see, they kept the definition pretty loose, on purpose. And that sounds like a great first CPE code word for this episode. Let's use that. Our first CPE code word for this episode is compensation, as in those regulations tightened on stock-based compensation in 2003 mandating that they are included in cost pools and back to our conversation with professor burns in sarasota that's the most basic cost sharing and then it has three elements for the mutual development of intellectual property the protection of ip rights potentially contributed and then the exploitation of that ip mutually developed here's the three takeaways of modern cost sharing when we look at it intra-firm, the transfer pricing aspects. We still have the inputs. We still have the outputs. How are we going to divide up the outputs? But the middle one, it's really about who's going to bear the risk. If we look from the 1966 original proposal of the cost sharing regulations to the most, you know, to the 2011 final, to the OECD's uh, BEPS project on transfer pricing in general, who bears the risk, I think, is the most often forgotten aspect of the functional analysis. On paper, we may write that down, but, and this is where the rubber meets the road. Right now, we are all suffering through the coronavirus. Many of you have supply chains in China. I remember about 10 years ago, a great case study in Europe. Now, not great for Coca-Cola. The case study was is that the French government decided there was a flu epidemic. I, f I forget the exact illness, but uh, it was a stomach virus. And the French government had decided it was Coke's fault. It must be something to do with Coke. One could wonder if, you know, if this was one of these French US uh, you know, tiffs. They said it was Coke's fault. And they shut down the Coke facilities in the Benelux. There was no Coke in France for, uh, for a couple weeks, no production. From a transfer pricing perspective, what became very interesting, rubber meets the road. From a transfer pricing perspective, Coke had put, on paper at least, all of its risk in Belgium. Belgium at that time had a tax incentive through a headquarters operation. And now, one could look in that stress of that year of shutdown, who actually bore the risk? Did that headquarters company report less earnings? Was it unable to make the distributions expected? Did its treasury management center soak up those losses? Or did the United States actually 
take deductions, pass through the money to cover the losses? And the answer was Benelux, the Belgium, soaked up those losses. Not because of transfer pricing, because that was the business operations, the functional analysis that Koch actually had. I bring that up because now we have the coronavirus. Many of y'all, transfer pricing is an economic phenomenon. Forget the tax aspects. If we all had zero tax, if we all had zero tax regimes right now in the world, every country does away with tax, somehow magically we can fund government, we still have transfer pricing. Ronald Coase in 1930, you know, his seminal work on about the firm, there's reasons for firms to trade internally and not on the open market because of transaction costs and so forth. That's why we have horizontal and vertical integration today. We all know that practically speaking, but I think we forget where it comes from. So we're gonna have transfer pricing regardless in terms of intra-firm transactions and regardless of if there's tax, we're gonna have disputes on, are we gonna have more jobs in China or more jobs in the United States? Is the manager in China gonna have more of the earnings and get a better bonus than the manager in the United States? These are political realities, nothing to do with taxation. Now we have the coronavirus, and it's gonna be interesting because rubber meets the road. We're gonna be able to stress test where did companies say that their risk is and who actually bears the risk? Will the United States be making transfers to support, by example, supply chains in China? This is kind of a warning and a, and a, and a, and a good thing. Or will the Chinese operations of your companies be expected like if they were in the United States to go out and find financing, maybe they're gonna have losses this year in China. Somehow are they gonna bear the risk that on paper they're supposed to bear if that's where you have placed your risk on paper for transfer pricing purposes. So the coronavirus is obviously not a good thing. It's very bad for the world economy. However, from a transfer pricing academic point of view, this is gonna be a great year to stress test companies functional analysis of where they've placed that risk in their value chain. Right, and, and when you think about the idea of cost sharing, it's in some ways, we're basically saying that if a company bears certain costs, are they ultimately also bearing the risk associated with? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. What I actually found interesting is you said, you, you had talked about the history of cost sharing, and going back to the initial cost sharing regulations, Right, you had given me a, a little perspective here, and you said the, the original cost-sharing regulations actually goes back to say that the risk to be borne with respect to development activity is the possibility that such activity will not result in the production of intangible property, or that the intangible property produced will not be of sufficient value to allow for the recovery of the costs of developing it. And I, I didn't know that perspective, and I thought that was fascinating because that is almost contrary to why, why people enter into cost-sharing arrangements today. Like the idea is, hey, we're gonna originally we're gonna share costs between related parties because we're thinking this is just you know this is not really gonna result in that much, and we're gonna incur losses, and we want to share those losses amongst our participants because in some way there's perhaps. Um, value to the organization, but not monetary value. And but yes, but yet cost sharing has evolved beyond that. It's it's actually different from that initial perspective, right? So, so let me give you four reasons to enter into cost and into uh, cost sharing arrangements. 
One is Ronald Coase's original view, right? It reduces, if it doesn't reduce transaction costs, then why are you doing it? If it doesn't reduce costs in general, then why are you doing it? But number two, how do we share the risk? Because the risk, as you know, I know somebody in the room is from pharma, but generally when we start setting transfer pricing, we start with pharmaceutical industry. And it costs about $1.6 billion to bring a drug to market. Not only is there risk, but then a third point of cost sharing, there's the, um, there's the intangibles, but there, there's the innovation that biotechs, by example, small biotechs that certainly don't have 1.6 billion, um, they have the innovation, but they don't have the capital or the experience to bring it to market. We've all heard, wow, that guy's really smart, but he's not a business person. She's a great professor. Unfortunately, she can't monetize what she knows. Therefore, she's an academic. <laughs> but we've, we've all heard this terminology. And so it's risk bringing together partnerships and innovation, reducing or sharing costs, but also reducing transaction costs. We, you know, so we have these different principles of why we come into cost sharing. But again, I think the one that's most forgotten is about bearing risk. And what does risk mean? It means the failure of production of the intangible property, and that was recognized in 1966. Why have we somehow, when I say we, but why is, and I don't mean to harp on Treasury, but let me harp on Treasury, why has <laughs> Treasury forgotten that risk going into cost sharing means the sharing of the failure to uh, develop intangibles, or that the intangibles don't turn out as expected? Why do I bring that up? Let's take the Amazon case. Who here knew back when Amazon started to transfer its intangibles to Luxembourg for legitimate business reasons to develop out that world market, to do the language and so forth, that Amazon would be the biggest company, that Jeff Bezos would be the richest man in the world? Who made that invent? Now remember, at that time, Amazon was in operating losses. There was no point in the future did it look like Amazon would start making money. In fact, the press reports were, what kind of company is this that has such a valuation at that time, not yet on the market though, that people were looking at as the next big thing that couldn't make money and had no foreseeable opportunity to make money? Who would make that bet? That, from a cost-sharing point of view, is the perspective that Amazon entered into a third-party arrangement with Amazon Luxembourg. And we have to stress that third-party arm's-length arrangement. That's our law. Back to, for the lawyers in the room, we live by a book. And the book was written by U.S. Treasury. In 1935, U.S. Treasury, for good geopolitical reasons, because of tax treaties, because of the United States being a capital-exporting nation, for good geopolitical reasons said, we want to go by the arm's length theory as if third parties were transacting when we divvy up the earnings pot between a foreign country and the United States. This was really the US position. Not all countries in the world, I promise you, in 1935 when that regulation was written, but even before when it was being discussed at the League of Nations, now the United Nations, when it was being discussed in the context of tax treaties. A lot of countries didn't do that. Internally, we don't do that, right? Internally, within the United States, for state and local tax, we use formulary apportionment, which is 
which is not easier, which is not simpler, and will not produce a, 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 a one-page tax form system like was supposedly coming from the Tax Cuts and Job Act. But um, so that's, that's where we're, let's just bring it forward from 1966 to yeah. where we're at today. Yeah. U.S. Treasury seems to be bringing cases that are post facto, even when its own regulations and its own statements said that anticipated benefits from you know, commensurate with income, 1986 and the 482, and so we reasonably anticipated benefits, but those would be forward-looking from the point of time of the agreement, but yet every case seems to be a post facto case. It seems to be, we don't like the result, Medtronics. We don't like the result of the agreement that we did with Medtronics. The closing agreement produced better than expected results for the Puerto Rican subsidiary. So let's challenge Medtronics. There was the uh, APA case. Um, which company? Uh, um, Eaton. 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 Yeah. Eaton. Mm -hmm. we, have a, we have an advanced pricing agreement. You know what? We don't like the results. So let's bring a case. And then the excuse? Well, you know, Eaton got their, uh, their, for, their formula. When they were doing their, they entered bad data, and so they got some bad results. But Eaton came to the IRS. Eaton came to Treasury and said, we've discovered we have some bad data. We had some bad results. We're amending our return. And Treasury was like, this is our opportunity to tell you that we don't like post facto the results. We have to redo the agreement. And Eaton said, but we live by a book in that case, an APA, or closing agreements, right? We live by these words in this piece of paper. This is how we made business decisions. Whether we would do a deal with you because it would be cheaper for litigation, whether we would do a deal with you because it would be better press, we can't do this deal because it's against the rule of law. There's something fundamental as Americans that we want to be able to rely on what our government tells us. Well, it's interesting going back to your point about Amazon that there's there was actually business rationale for them being able to enter into cost sharing arrangement with Luxembourg. Why is it that multinationals tend to enter into cost sharing arrangements with low tax jurisdictions? That really is the elephant, isn't it? <laughs> it, it really is, right? It's, 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 it, it just happens to be a, a, you know, advantageous from a tax perspective. So let's be honest, so right? So let's start. But, yeah. Where did cost sharing and the transfer pricing disputes really start? It was really started with Puerto Rico. Right? There was our Caymans case. There was an oil case from Venezuela. It really started with Puerto Rico. The first pharmaceutical operation in Puerto Rico as recorded by Department of Commerce was 1960. The Puerto Rican tax credits and all that came about from the United States federal point of view, much later, much later in time, the late 70s. By the time those came about, there were over 50 operating pharmaceutical manufacturers in Puerto Rico already. They went to Puerto Rico, and I actually know this because, again, my mentor was Walter Diamond, and Walter Diamond informed me of what actually happened. They were under the Red Scare in the 1950s. The missiles were going to come raining down at any time. This is what people believed, and we needed medical, pharmaceuticals, and equipment to be able to revive, literally repair the body of the country. And so we had to diversify the risk of our operations, and where 
was the American colonies. Well, we didn't have any. America didn't have colonies. So where was America outside of America that the missiles would rain down on? Puerto Rico was literally the only, Guam was too far away. And they didn't have any infrastructure. Puerto Rico didn't have any infrastructure, but it was the closest place that they, that was the actual reason that the pharmaceuticals started to look at Puerto Rico. Now, Puerto Rico was outside the US tax system, and back in the late 50s and 60s, you'll remember, there was no controlled foreign corporation legislation. But it wasn't for low tax, it was for a diversification. So let's fast forward it till today. Is it Cayman Islands? Is it uh, Ireland. U UK through mm -hmm. Bermuda, Ireland to Bermuda? Is it, <laughs> is it just the low tax? Well, when I speak with my friends at Treasury, and again, I'm not always the contrarian to them, but you know, if they're supporting Treasury, then as an academic, I feel I have to be on the other side. And the contrarian, my question to them is, so tax shouldn't be considered in the business decision-making process? Do you consider tax not a cost? And of course, no, no, tax is an allowable cost, but this is unreasonable. And I said, but when you say it's unreasonable, do you mean by uh, your personal perspective, or do you mean I'm gonna find that in the law of the United States that Congress or even the United States Treasury has written? Because when I read what Congress has written that has been promulgated through a democratic, lots of lobbyists, lots of dollars, but those dollars and lobbyists support our, I'm gonna say this and I won't explain it right now, but they support our retirement because all the companies in the room are public. It's my retirement counts in my state pension or my 401k, 403b that invest in your companies, but those, those laws were promulgated democratically, and those laws allowed those cost-sharing agreements. And the IRS wrote that 1935 arm's length, and the IRS in every iteration, including the 2009 proposed and 2000 final said, these regulations comply with the arm's length standard. Had the IRS come out straightforward and just said, arm's length standard isn't going to be applicable anymore for transfers of intangibles. Three, six, it doesn't say the word arm's length in 482. It doesn't say the word arm's length in 367D. Congress didn't say arm's length. Treasury told you arm's length because of geopolitical reasons. If Treasury had come and said, you know what, we're gonna formulate apportionment going forward. Let's make regulations, we'll take the input, but that's why it's gonna work. But that's not what Treasury told you. Treasury told us, the public, the taxpayer, that these regulations, which aren't exactly third-party transactions, we know that from our Altera case, where everybody in industry, every single group in industry came with documentation and all the other technology cases, saying that arm's length parties do not share, in those cases, you know, the big issue was the stock-based compensation. They don't share it. U.S. Treasury, show us one agreement, one agreement. And U.S. Treasury would say, well, you know, the regulations comply with the arm's length standard. The arm's length standard is actually, I know you didn't understand the arm's length standard until now, but it's actually an income-based method. It's an asset purchase agreement-based method. It's a, uh, and then you have all the people who believed in the arm's length standard saying, but that's not what the arm's length standard has been for the last 80 years. 
as you've told other countries geopolitically. I think the reason we don't have that written in the regulation, because Treasury could write it, and if they wrote it, I'd be like, yeah, that's the rule. Y'all would be, that's the rule. But you keep reading the arm's length standard. The reason they don't do it, because we want that to be the rule for US, US relative to US companies, but we don't want it to be the rule for India to US companies. We don't want it to be the rule for China or Indonesia or Kenya for US companies. And therefore, we say to the world, it all complies with the arm's length standard. But internally, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, we know it doesn't, and post facto, you're getting a little too much, let's bring some of it back. Now, Congress can sort it out, Congress did. We have the Tax Cuts and Job Act. Guilty, feedy, beat, <laughs> these new terminologies, these new acronyms. Very, su very, very suitable, by the way, these acronyms. <laughs> very suitable. <laughs> But Congress can redefine the word intangibles, as they did in 367 and, uh, and 482. If, if I'd say words have meaning, this is, the most, this is, for me, the most interesting aspect of Altera. It's not the constitutional challenges of the Administrative Procedures Act, and it's interesting, academically speaking. But here's, here's really the fundamental crux. What does the word intangible mean? And it comes down to the word any. A-N-Y, any. When you read 482, if you're looking at it right now on the computer screen, any transfer, yada, 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 intangibles. Any transfer, intangibles. The Treasury argued, any does not modify the word that it immediately precedes, intangibles, any intangibles. Actually, it works somewhat like a preposition, and it modifies I'm sorry, any transfer. It doesn't modify the word transfer, it modifies the word intangibles. Just to interrupt quickly, Fiona, in 2014, legislation under the Obama administration expanded the scope of intangibles. Can you tell us how the definition changed? They've changed quite a bit, actually. The IRS wants to limit the reduction in the US tax base from cost-sharing arrangements, and they've changed regulations several times throughout the years to do so. First, there was the qualified cost-sharing regulations issued in 1995. Those regulations tightened on stock-based compensation in 2003, mandating that they are included in cost pools. Temporary regulations were issued in 2009, then final regulations in 2011. You can see how cost-sharing arrangements often end up in dispute. And let's make that a CPE code word, our second for the episode. And that code word is reliable, as in the definition of intangible permitted the IRS to value intangibles on an aggregate basis in cases where it achieved, and I quote, a more reliable result. And back to our conversation with Professor, Ver with Professor Burns in Sarasota. So intangibles can have an expansive meaning because Congress put any here and put intangibles at the end of the sentence, but meant for any to be in front of the word intangibles. That's Treasury's argument. And the company said, but the way I read English, okay, the way I read statutes, the statutory construction, but just the simple English, if a word precedes another word, it modifies that word it precedes. That's, Congress could have written it differently. The people who write our tax laws are you when you're younger working as a staff member on the Hill. It's you as a lobbyist who are seeking to influence for the benefit of your company, which benefits America, which benefits my retirement account. So I trust 
your lobby dollars. I do. I'm not one of those people who says we shouldn't have lobby dollars. I want you representing my retirement account by representing your company because your earnings go to my 401k or my pension plan at Texas A&M. I'll, I'll stop with that. But I, I think it just opens up a different perspective for you to think about when we talk about cost sharing. Because what I read in the newspaper is always low tax countries. Yes. And it's the way I interpret it. This is what Congress wants you to do. And if Congress doesn't want you to do it, it makes guilty, beat, feedy, transparency on taxation that, it, you know, Congress can do a lot of things. Right. And, and, and it's chosen not to. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University every Tuesday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai tpu. I think, you know, going back to now specifically to talk about the Tax Cut Jobs Act, right? The TCJA and all those different taxes. Let's 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 talk about guilty. Let's break it down a little bit, right? What is the purpose of guilty? If, for everybody who doesn't know, global intangible low taxed income, guilty. First of all, you got to give a big credit for those tax drafters that they come up, you know, that they could, yeah, guilty. <laughs> you know, but guilty, I, you know, guilty is an honest acronym. It goes after what you, what you mentioned. It goes after all income of an American parent, of an American headquartered company, all your foreign potential income except for that routine rate of return of 10% of depreciable assets. And you might wonder, why 10%? It, there's actually, because there, I, I, I did wonder and I researched it, and there were a bunch of economists in that, and that 10% is actually a, a really good routine rate of return number. But regardless, across the board, for pharma and for manufacturer of light bulbs and for this and for technology, why 10% rate of return? That sounds very Brazilian to me, Brazilian <laughs> transfer pricing method, but regardless, that's what we have on the table. So after that 10% rate of return on your depreciable assets, which is the most, it's hard to write tax law. It's hard to write, you know, to make, you know, what's good policy and how do we write a tax law around that good policy? But if I was writing it, guilty is probably not the way I would write it. Because by making it a 10% rate of return on your depreciable tangibles, doesn't that therefore increase your incentive to actually move your factories to get that 10% rate of return, the routine rate, of, to move your tangibles, to move your factories, to move your equipment outside the US 
to reduce your guilty income and to reduce your subpart F because the more operating income you have from actual factories as opposed to the magic intangible stuff that we still really don't understand as economists, um, that, uh, you know, that, that's not really what we want as tax policy. Actually, we wanted people to bring their manufacturing back in and, and guilty is the opposite. But that 10% routine rate of return comes back dividend deduction, it comes back tax-free. The guilty income, on the other hand, which is everything else. So if you were a member of Congress who wanted to tax everything else, you, you got your wish. That's what guilty does. And it brings it back not with the dividend deduction. It brings it back at the regular tax rate. And what, uh, what about the beat tax? I mean, there, there's three specific ones here. So, you know, we got guilty and then we got beat, right? So for right now, you get a tax break with guilty, if you want to call it that, because half your guilty can be, uh, can be relieved, right? Half of it. But who knows what's going to happen next year? With beat, the foreign countries are going crazy. They say that beat's just a secondary withholding tax. They say, hey, we have tax treaties with you, United States, that say you can't have, you already have a 30% withholding, and you've reduced that 30% through the tax treaties. Now you're telling us that payments to Germany, a high-tax country, payments to Canada, payments to France, those high-tax country payments, because we think about low tax, mm -hmm. but the... But the foreign countries, they're thinking about their very high tax systems. We now have a, a fairly low corporate tax rate relative to some of our trading partners, Brazil. And, and BEAT comes along and says all these related party payments, all this transfer pricing, all this Ronald Coase <laughs> payments, the famous economists who said we got to do these things, the reason they occur is because you save money, and saving money is a good thing in business. All these payments that occur naturally, we're now going to impose the regular U.S. tax. They're not only not going to be deductible, but you're going to have to actually recalculate basically a corporate uh, alternative minimum tax. Yes, the Tax Cuts and Job Act took away the corporate alternative, alternative minimum tax, but it put it right back in with meat. You have to recalculate and pay the corporate tax on it. And that rate is going up 5%, 10%. 12.5%. Let me remind you history one more time because this is what scares me about guilty in the beat. When the companies went to those low tax jurisdictions mm -hmm. in the 50s and 60s and 70s, who here at the table remembers what the corporate tax rate was? It was over 50% at the federal level. States had their own mm -hmm. corporate tax. So if you took states like New York, or California, you're in the 55, 56% US corporate tax rate. What was the individual tax rate? So now you're a shareholder. What was your tax rate in the United States during those periods of time? Well, to start with, when Puerto Rico got started, that first pharmaceutical company, it was 91%. 91% income tax. Now, if I had re-described that situation as, you know, there's a country out there that does 91% personal income tax that has 56% effective corporate tax rate, you would all immediately think, Venezuela. You would. And you'd be like, we've got to ban those people. Oh, but that was the United States. When companies started to move operations outside the United States, 
It was for survival and with the encouragement of Congress. For whatever internal reasons that we had such high tax rates, they also wanted American companies to go out and build the world, globalize, build the world, spread American influence, but also survive. Just like, why do we have personal income tax? Because it's the easiest tax to collect, because it's actually where all the money is, right? So we have, we charge, you know, tax on our salaries and so forth. If, if we could magically just tax companies and not have to tax ourselves, personal income, we would, we would, we would vote for that. But we can't, there's not enough money in corporate income tax, no matter how high, if we took 100% of your income to pay for what we need, roads, schools, healthcare, whatever, just not enough money, right? So with BEAT, the United States has put in a system that is an alternative minimum tax for corporations, and it is going against the grain of modern business theory, again, as established by Ronald Coase back in 1934, that for, you know, this is a seminal book, but telling businesses that they have to go third party isn't necessarily what we as America want. We want our U.S. companies to be integrated horizontally and vertically. We want our U.S. companies to own the subsidiaries they're dealing with, whether it's for national security, because we want to protect the assets, intangible and hardware. I know somebody in the room you know, deals with technology hardware. We want American companies to be responsible and own that. BEAT encourages you to do exactly what Ronald Coase said you wouldn't do. Go to the third-party marketplace to avoid the BEAT, even be although the transaction costs are going to be higher. I don't think BEAT's good economically. I don't think it's good in tax. I do think it will be effective in raising some revenue for the first five or 10 years until corporations sort out that there are ways around beat. Now, one of the ways is, guess what? Today's subject, cost sharing. <laughs> because cost sharing allows companies like yours to net their naturally occurring payments back and forward inside the United States, outside. So inbound and outbound, the regulations, and again, I'm sure of it because at the American Bar Association debate in January we had on this, it was, everybody on the panel agreed that the cost-sharing regs allow you to net the payments back and forward, and more importantly, so the netting, everyone agrees with that. Yes, it allows you to net. However, it allows you to net for beat, because that was a real concern. Now, no, there's no regulation that says that yet in the beat regs at least. There's no PLR, there's no, you know, but at the American Bar Association meeting, that was what the common agreement was, including from US Treasury. That doesn't hold them, they're not bound, you know, to it, but it was in a public forum. Beat allows you to, I'm sorry, cost sharing allows you to net, so you're gonna see more cost sharing, not less cost sharing going forward because of beat. You're gonna see, I think, more cost sharing going forward because risk in today's world is more severe. The Cold War, I'm, you know, Cold War, Red Scare, oh, it's so risky. What will the world look like? We'll be in bliss afterwards, right? And then afterwards, we're like, oh my God, I wish it was the Cold War days when it was just me and the other side, right? And so it's like, the world is risky. You know what we can guarantee? History repeats itself. Risk will always be there. 
That's business. We will die. I don't know. There's a risk of dying. You're going to die. There's no risk. That's a guarantee. It's a guarantee. <laughs> just, it's just the timing of it, right? The risk will occur. It's just the timing of when the risk and how severe that risk is. Now we have coronavirus. Who knew that we would declare a flu, an epidemic, you know, the plague, the, the black plague of the, uh, of the 13th century, and, and it would destroy your supply chains? Who knew? So I think that, you know, as we've enacted the Tax Cuts and Job Act to simplify, was the statement you know, made about it, to simplify our tax system, it's done the exact opposite. Not only has it complicated it, but it's gone in a reverse direction of where the United States, economically speaking, wants to be, both from a true economics point of view of encouraging manufacturing in the United States, but also from just a phenomena of economics that companies Integration within corporate structures is a good thing. So let's let's just recap really quickly, right? The TCJA effectively reduced corporate the, reduced the corporate tax rate. It was sort of created a pseudo territorial system. You got the introduction of the guilty, FDII, the FIDI, and the beat tax. Do you think that the TCJA was influenced at all by the outcomes on the Amazon caution case, the Altera case, and things of that nature? Absolutely. Congress, and again, when Congress wants to act, Congress can act. So def after the fact, post facto, Congress listening to the public, listening to Treasury stated perhaps intangibles does mean goodwill. Perhaps intangibles does mean stock-based compensation, if you will. Perhaps intangible, whatever. And so when these cases went too far in Congress's mind, Congress included the new what is intangibles mean statement in, um, in, in, in the uh, 367D and, and in 482. So now it's, it's been more clearly defined, and that is a result of the cases. I wish that Congress had also included the arm's length standard. My fear is that because they didn't, in our new world order of pillar one OECD, that the United States, now that it's backed off of the arm's length standard, now that intangibles has meanings that as business people we accept. There is spirit of innovation for Amazon. There is obviously goodwill and foreign goodwill versus domestic goodwill. There, there are um, you know, workforce in place from having a, a great workforce and quality control. All of these are great intangibles and we do value them from a, both a financial accounting point of view and, you know, and if you want to buy a company, of, of course we value those things. That's why we you know, may buy a loss making company because integrated it has value to us, of course. There are new intangibles associated with the, uh, the, the digital economy and you know, business Marketing models. Intangibles. That's right. Marketing mm -hmm. intangibles. But, but in a tax world, we haven't valued those for, I believe, good reasons in the past. Now, going forward with the Tax Cuts and Job Act, it is 99.99% that we're going to have to value them. I'm not afraid of valuing them. I actually, you know, from a tax economics, pure academic point of view, I, I think that we really should have been valuing them the whole time. But okay, that's the way the law was written. That's the way the courts, that's why we have courts, as the current commissioner of the IRS said. Um, you know, thank God for the court system. He is a tax litigator. However, 
what we do is good for us, what we do is also good for India, China, Venezuela, Argentina, you name the country. And personally, I don't think it's a good thing for the United States under a pillar one type regime or whatever the OECD crops up next to apply a greater meaning to intangibles to U.S. companies. Because what are U.S. companies at the end of the day? They're all intangibles. Our manufacturing base is overseas. Our services base, thank God, still some in the U.S., but is overseas, our business process outsourcing and so forth. What, we are the nation of innovation. When, when, when the IRS, the Treasury, put forward in the Amazon case that, you know, okay, we have a new argument, what Amazon actually transferred that has to be valued and they didn't value and it's worth billions of dollars was the spirit of innovation of Amazon. And when I read that term, this like innovation, I was like, they got it right, but we're a country of innovation. And, and America bears the risk of that innovation. Who pays for it? You and I do. Because every time, out of 1,000 companies, one of them is in Amazon. 999 of them failed. 999 didn't pay their creditors. 999 didn't pay taxes, they had, and, and so forth. So that comes out of our pockets, in essence, because we still want roads and schools and so forth. So we, we end up paying for it. We paid for that as a country. So as a country, shouldn't we be very skeptical at when other countries tell us that our innovation really belongs to them as some kind of new concept of marketing intangible? Shouldn't we look at a very close eye and say, but who bore the risk? It was us, the US taxpayer, who bore that risk. Under the same terminology, I'll agree with US Treasury that some of that innovation risk was borne by the US. And I think companies, from that perspective, at least going forward, should cough up you know, some more post facto. But you know, when you do your new cost sharing arrangements, cough up some more money to the US. But by the same token, what is US Treasury going to do for you when it comes to the other countries bringing these new concepts of intangibles when they decide to act their own Tax Cuts and Job Act. It's interesting because I think when, when everyone's doing well economically, no one's going to be complaining and we can have actually dignified conversations about what the right answer is. But given the current uh, economic environment and what we are going to see, I think it's going to become more challenging in the future, right? Yep. I, I would say one last question. Given the current environment, post-TCJA and you know, coronavirus impacts, impacts of the supply chain, what are some strategies that you think multinationals should consider if they have existing cost-sharing arrangements or even if they should even want to potentially consider one in the future? Well, as I mentioned, I, I think cost sharing going forward is actually going to expand not to not. So if the objective of U.S. Treasury and Congress was to um, stifle cost sharing, it's the exact opposite. Beat because of beat because of just the nature of risk and risk is increasing Corona and so yep. forth. Now we're actually realizing risk. That's the point. The timing is going to happen. The timing happened. It's now we're going to see much more cost sharing. The strategies I think companies are going to be employing. about. More than 10 years ago, I moved from teaching tax planning, because I'm an academic of a tax program, to teaching tax risk management, TRM, because I already saw it on the wall. I saw that your job is certainly about how can we mitigate and reduce our taxation because it's a business cost. And again, as I always bring it back, it's a cost on my retirement plan. <laughs> but that's your job. But going forward, your job is 
much more about how do I stop double taxation? Because that's the new world order if you have overseas operations. So I think cost sharing, when appropriately done, because that's kind of the new word, um, when it's appropriately done, is going to help you to mitigate some of the double taxation. If the United States Treasury and APAs will agree to your cost sharing, and most importantly, agree to represent that agreement. You don't want to be representing your company with India. You lose every time. You don't want to be representing your country with China. You lose every time. You want to be having the US Treasury represent your company with India and China, and that's the mutual agreement procedure. In fact, this pillar one of the OECD calls for there to be some new world order mutual agreement procedures that are always acting, always in place, but who's representing you? U.S. Treasury. So cost sharing agreements going forward, I think the U.S. Treasury, I, I've suggested this already with, with uh, Treasury and, and taxpayers in the room, there's going to have to be an APA process where cost sharing agreements in particular are part of a fast forward APA process. And Treasury, well, that's what the regulations are for. Well, they didn't work out really well, did they? So there needs to be a relook with industry of how, a, uh, of how cost sharing could be fast forwarded through an APA process where in essence, what the company is doing is hiring US Treasury as your litigation counsel. And so when I have US Treasury in the room and the taxpayers in the room, I said, why don't you all describe to me what this new world order looks like? Last year, you, Treasury, are telling Amazon that, you know, they're about $5 billion short and they need to bring, or Coca-Cola or Microsoft, pick your favorite company right now. Next year, there's 10 countries out there that are going to tell you, U.S. Treasury, through the U.S. company, that your U.S. company is $10 billion short. Five of them. That's $50 billion. What's that world going to look like, U.S. Treasury and taxpayer? So if we can have a cost-sharing mechanism that allows U.S. Treasury, as I said, to hire U.S. Treasury, to get U.S. Treasury behind what you're doing up front. So I'm sure all you in the room know about this new diagnostic um, process that U.S. Treasury's published. If, if you don't, it's a very good document to go look at. Um, but they've, uh, U.S. Treasury said, before you do an advanced pricing agreement, you must fill out this diagnostic, this functional diagnostic, and then and submit it. And my perspective is that's, that's great. Um, U.S. Treasury, as long as, and they'll say, well, we can't guarantee anything. I say, as long as, I say, as long as you can guarantee the company, 12 months from now, you're going to hammer out an agreement. And if it's just to split the baby like the courts have been doing for years, split the baby. Because it no longer is it going to be about tax strategy, tax planning, what I don't pay the U.S. government. It's all going to be about tax risk management, which is what can I get away with can I come out alive? Can I come out with my skin still when I go out into the global new world order of pillar one? And pillar one, I promise you, is going to, so pillar two, the alternative minimum taxes that all the other countries. This, we have now empowered the rest of the world to do what US Treasury wishes it had been able to do the last 50 years. Congress is allowing them to do going forward. But it's going to be really ugly when the other countries are doing it to us. And if we're the country of innovation and we're the country of earnings power, they're not doing it to their own companies because there's no money there for them to take. Or they're already taking it. Venezuela, I don't, you know, 
I'll just expropriate it all, right? <laughs> so that's, I think, you know, cost sharing needs to actually have more regulation. It needs to be clearly defined timeline for an APA agreement that allows you certainty. I bet everybody in this room will give up some money for certainty. And everybody in this room will give up some money to know that Treasury has your back. And uh, like baseball arbitration, I'm not talking about internationally, I'm talking with U.S. Treasury. Why doesn't U.S. Treasury do for you internally what it purports it wants externally? With other countries, we demand baseball arbitration. They won't give it to us. But if you don't know baseball arbitration, each makes your best offer, and the arbitrator picks one. So each of you has in, you know, again, Coase theorem and stuff, uh, but each of you has the incentive to get as close to the most reasonable offer as possible because only one of the two offers is going to be chosen. Wouldn't it be great if that applied with Treasury puts forward its best APA offer, you put forward your best, one of them's going to be chosen. If that's what, you know, it's 12 months, we've reached the deadline, whatever the offers on the table are, the arbitrator is going to choose. Let the arbitrator be the um, taxpayer advocate's office. You know, so, so we all trust. Impartial. I mean, Nina's not there anymore, yep. but mm -hmm. an impartial advocate. Let them choose it. And then once it's chosen, Treasury has your back and they're your counsel. Oh, well, let me say one more thing about, about cross-border, okay. right? About cross-border solutions. So we go back to Coase's book, right? 1934, the reason we have cost sharing is because, you know, it reduces transaction costs. If tax risk management is your new world order, that's a really, really expensive new world order. You're now going to be doing, and this is guaranteed, you're going to be litigating in 10, 12, 20 countries. Pick how many countries you do business in. That's how many countries you're going to be in controversy. I don't have to use the word litigation, but you're going to be in controversy with. They're going to be coming with some new, large assessments that wouldn't have happened five years past. Okay. Mm -hmm. That you need to have AI built into your tax function. And when I go to all the conferences, the academic conferences, and I'm, you know, the ABA or International Fiscal Association, and all the large corporate tax leaders are there from the tech, from the industry, from whatever, they all have the same, um, the same, I have to do much more with the same budget. Right. And how do you do much more with the same budget? Thank God America is a country of innovation and that we can even innovate in our tax function. That's right. So That's right. I, I want to hear about what y'all do, but I think the AI and the ability to use our budget, leverage our budget to do twice as much work that we need to do yeah. going forward with less, is, is yeah. going to be... A big help. That's right. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd.
So it's, it, this is fascinating. Thank you so much. I love the historical references that you're able to bring because I think it puts it all into perspective. Uh, really appreciate you know you being here, Professor Burns, and I hope everyone enjoyed it as much as I have. You know, my takeaway really is okay. Cost sharings are probably going to increase. You know, they, were, they could be beneficial for multinationals. Um, you know, in this post TCJA environment, and we should all take a look at that and, and see how it's going to impact your organization um, and whether or not there's going to be benefits to that. So. I, I think a great poll we could do in the room, but y'all should do as a company. Sure. How many people believe five years from now the corporate tax rate will remain 21%? Oh, I, I, raise your hand if you actually think it's going to stay at 21%. Historically, oh. it's okay, been we over. Got one. <laughs> we got one. Historically, it's been over 50. Yeah. Historically, the individual tax rate's been as high as 91%. You heard that. Up until Ronald Reagan, it was still above 60. It was. It was pushing 70. So going forward, if you believe the tax rate's going to stay 21% and there's going to be a 50% relief for guilty, it's all smooth sailing. It's all going to be okay. But if going Paolo, forward- Paolo, you're like, going to be okay. <laughs> if, like me, you think, if like me, you think there's going to be a real risk, a real actual actualization of higher tax rates, that maybe there's going to be no guilty relief and so forth, you're going to find cost sharing Every company is going to be doing cost sharing with yourself, and it's going to be in manufacturing operations. It's going to be because that's the only way you're going to be able to survive in the American economy where tax rates are a lot higher than they are today, and you still need to compete against other countries that subsidize their companies yeah. that have low tax rates. No. Yeah. We have a few minutes left uh, for my favorite part of the show. What we want to know, here's how it works. We ask a transfer pricing expert, Professor Burns, that's you today, uh, a rapid fire round of questions. No thinking, just answer, are you ready? Let's go for this. Good, you didn't think. <laughs> Students in the classroom. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, what one characteristic distinguishes your good students from your great students? I always say this, I'm not the smartest person in the room, I just have the persistence to keep on searching until I find the answer. So I, it's not the smartest person in the room, it's the one who has the persistence to keep on. Never give up, right. What do you know now that you wish you knew at the start of your career? Not to go into academics. There's a lot of money to be made in tax <laughs> in the software and the other world. But seriously, I, what I wish somebody had told me at the start was that I, you know, soft skills. When I was in school, and still today, nobody teaches soft skills. Nobody teaches that you have to work in groups, and how do you work in groups? Nobody teaches marketing as a lawyer. Like, oh, if I join a big firm, no, you're still out there again. Nobody teaches those basic soft skills. Taxation is still soft skills. How do you make a relationship with Treasury? How do you talk with, how, if I'm with Treasury, how do, nobody teaches that. I wish back then somebody had explained to me how important soft skills were, and more importantly, actually trained me on soft skills, because it's a painful learning process in the real world. Soft skills overall, soft yeah. power is not really yeah. even taught. I, I'm happy to learn a tax formula in the real world, but I, I, you know, I don't like being in a country and learning that you know, the kind of, uh, in Aggie world, we all thumbs up, that's the Aggie thing. It's, right. Everybody knows this, go to Italy and put your thumbs up. Oh, there's some painful soft skills lessons in the real world. <laughs> Name one thing your students have taught you. Oh, patience. 
<laughs> a lot of patience. <laughs> Name one thing you've taught them. Perspective. Whatever the student's perspective is, I take a different perspective to show them that there are, because I lived overseas in a lot of different countries and I had this leader in the industry who forced me to, to learn different perspectives. I give them perspectives so that they can see three or four, I, they can see the globe, not one country. And now for the most serious question I have, what are you looking forward to the most this weekend in Sarasota? It's been a long time since I got to spend time with my wife. I, 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 you know, this is why I wish I hadn't gone into, and I don't, I love academia, but I, you know, a lot of people told me, oh, just be an academic, you know, you work 80, 100 hours a week, it's going to be so much easier. I, it's 25 years later, and I'm waiting for that easier week, and so is my wife. So I was like, if we go to Sarasota, we're going to just spend a whole day together with me. I won't even mention the word tax. And she's like, I don't believe you. <laughs> Well, that wraps our discussion at the Sarasota Summit, but we'll officially sign off from back here in Quarantine Central, i.e. New York. A special thank you to Professor Burns, of course, for a terrific discussion, making cost-sharing arrangements interesting. Now that takes talent. And we have more of that to go around. Don't miss out. Subscribe to The Fiona Show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and we'll fill you in on hot transfer pricing topics every week. We'll even try to make them entertaining. I'm Matthew DeMello, and I host, edit, and engineer this podcast. Executive producer Marilyn Mitchum-Strom writes our scripts. We'll meet you back here for another riveting episode of The Fiona Show next week. Stay safe. Stay sane. <laughs>